Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. With the election now more than a week away, the overwhelming consensus is that Republicans will retake both houses of Congress, setting the stage for an even more confrontational future in Washington with repercussions for defense spending as well as continued U.S. support for Ukraine. 30 progressive members called on the administration to start negotiating with Russia, a move rescinded soon after uh, having been made public after Democratic leaders said it undermined support for the president and his strategy of helping Ukraine. Ukrainian forces continue their advance as Russia uses Iranian drones to make life increasingly difficult uh, for Ukrainians as Moscow completed large-scale nuclear drills and Russian officials now threaten uh, to attack U.S. commercial spacecraft that are helping Kiev. The Biden administration released its national defense strategy as well as its nuclear posture and missile defense reviews that closely mirror those of the last two uh, Democratic and Republican documents. This strategy lists climate as an existential threat, but otherwise keep keeps priorities uh, of China, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, uh, and uh, terrorism the same. But it did cancel two nuclear programs, the unguided B-63 tactical weapon and the nuclear uh, submarine-launched cruise missile. The day, after, uh, the day the strategy was disclosed, the Financial Times reported the U.S. Air Force will withdraw two F-15C squadrons uh, from Okinawa to be replaced by rotational forces, a decision that was blasted by critics as the wrong signal to Beijing, Tokyo, and the region at the wrong time. Uh, in China, Xi Jinping will rem- remain premier for another five years, surrounded by a phalanx of hardliners as his predecessor the moderate Hu Jintao was not only prominently escorted uh, from the Chinese Communist Party's uh, quinquennial uh, gathering, uh, but kicked off the Standing Committee as well as the Politburo. The emergence of such a hardline government prompted a sharp drop uh, in world market confidence in China's future. And demonstrations in Iran continue raising questions whether the regime can survive. And tragically, the 25th Secretary of Defense, Dr. Ash Carter, passed away from a heart attack at age 68 as Washington grapples uh, with the loss of such a great defense thinker and leader. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and Michael Herson uh, of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms who returns to us uh, after a couple of weeks off. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Glad to have you back on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show. We're sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our uh, producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Michael, welcome back. Um, we missed you. Uh, give us an update on the NDAA and legislation that's afoot, right? Because you know, work has been going on, even as members go into the final stretch of this campaign uh, to set everything up for what could be an extremely busy session that includes a debt ceiling increase. Sure. So uh, I think it's right now it's a good news story. Uh, you know, we talked about NDAA on previous podcasts and how it doesn't look like uh, they will get the floor time they need when Congress reconvenes in November because they're only going to be here for less than two weeks. And then, you know, they're scheduled to be here for two weeks in December. They'll probably be here for three, but they'll probably have to do another CR. And there's lots of other legislative challenges that they face. So the committees have been conferencing the bill uh, and they're well on their way uh, to getting the conference um, at least the, the items that don't elevate themselves to the big four uh, should be completed, hopefully, uh, by, the, by the end of next week. So I'm still remain very confident that once the top line deal is reached, that we will have an NDAA uh, before the end of the year. Uh, but there has been a lot of action, you know, in D.C., as you've seen on, on Ukraine, uh, even though members are back at home. And it was a real you know, terrible fiasco for Democrats, because uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, the Progressive Caucus released a letter signed by 30 of their lawmakers 
uh, earlier this week, urging President Biden to engage in direct talks with Russia in order to reach a negotiated settlement and end its assault on Ukraine. Uh, the uh, attacks were fierce and really mostly from um, Democrats and other progressives, uh, both in the House and the Senate and outside uh, the House right. and the Senate. Uh, so which forced you know, Pramila Jayapal, one, to defend her letter, then uh, sent out a clarification on the letter, and then a day later retracted uh, the, the letter. Uh, and when she retracted it, she actually blamed her staff uh, for releasing the letter, uh, which then was later proved to be false because it was said that she personally reviewed the letter. Uh, you know, the letter was initially circulated back in June. Several members signed on then, but had said they thought the letter wasn't going out. And when it was released now in October, they said they would not have signed that letter, including Sarah Jacobs from the House Armed Services Committee, who said that things had changed and she would not have signed the letter. But there were outside groups, very far left groups like Code Pink, uh, pushing Jayapal to get new signatures, and about 12 members had signed on uh, in October. Um, and this was also you know, more embarrassing to Democrats because at the time, uh, the Speaker Pelosi was in Croatia uh, pledging additional support uh, for Ukraine uh, in the omnibus spending bill uh, in December. Um, so, and, and, and on top of that, it really hurts the Democrats' message because they were hoping to use this as a message in the midterms because of the coverage that Kevin McCarthy has gotten indicating that it's possible the GOP-led Congress may not be as favorable uh, for Ukraine funding. And I know you talked about this last week, and I think you know, that the, the media has reported it um, not entirely accurately because you, know, you gotta read between the lines what these guys say and why they say it. And McCarthy had said that we're not gonna continue to give them a blank check. That doesn't mean that McCarthy's intent is to cut off aid and support uh, to, to Ukraine. Uh, you know, part of McCarthy's stump speech now is comparing uh, Vladimir Putin to Hitler and drawing, con you know, drawing comparisons to, to the 1930s. And I know that McCarthy, after this coverage uh, was released, started calling Republican members on, on the National Security Committees to assure them that he will be continue to be supportive of Ukraine aid going forward. I just think we're going to see uh, efforts to, to show more accountability, and there will be Republicans that are opposed to it. Uh, but I still believe that Ukraine aid will continue under Republican-controlled Congress, especially since Mitch McConnell uh, will continue to lead the Republicans in the Senate. He, will, he is a very strong supporter. And, and let's discuss the minority leader's rhetoric on uh, the debt ceiling as well, right? Because we've discussed on this program many times how we feel that that could become another political football and a potential disaster, right? We ended up at the Budget Control Act because of rhetoric like that. Yeah, and I think that's rhetoric um, that we do need to take uh, seriously. And, I am, and I'm concerned about it personally, and I think uh, the Biden administration is definitely concerned about it because we're already in discussions, uh, from what I understand, with key offices on the Hill about raising the debt ceiling during the lame duck Congress when they're back uh, in November and December. Uh, and that reflects you know, to you know, some realities that they're, they're, they're facing, that Republicans are going to be in control of the House at least, uh, and that McCarthy plans to use the debt ceiling to extract some painful uh, concessions from the White House. And it's a very dangerous game of chicken. And we've talked about this before. We've been down this road before where the um, U.S. credit rating was downgraded from AAA to AA. And I think this is something that they really should not be playing with. And we see now uh, this is an issue in the whips race as well, where Jim Banks was on the Armed Services Committee and is running for whip, has said that we need to use the debt ceiling uh, as leverage. So um, Schumer supports this from what I understand, um, but he would need 60 votes in the Senate. 14 Republican uh, senators voted to raise the debt ceiling in uh, last year. So he would need 10 of those. Uh, already Senator Collins has come out uh, in favor of that, uh, but you know, we still would have, have a ways to go. But I'm, I'm hoping that they will be able to raise the debt ceiling uh, in, in the lame duck. In, in fact, uh, there was a um, Obama official, Jason Furman, who was former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, he suggested that they raise the debt ceiling uh, during the lame duck to 100 quintillion, <laughs> which uh, would raise, <laughs> pretty much raise the debt ceiling indefinitely and take this issue off the table. I uh, stumbled over quint, uh, quinquennial, uh, so I'm glad that you got quintennial, uh, quintillion out without, uh, without much problem and didn't it, it, like choke on it. Give us a quick uh, election uh, update, right? Republican uh, Democrats were feeling very good. It looks like uh, then it was, well, it'll be harder in these races. And then uh, after uh, John Fetterman's uh, unfortunate uh, appearance in a debate with uh, Dr. Oz, I mean, 
you know, as a, as a friend of mine uh, put it, he said, you know, John Fetterman's a good man. He agreed to the, it, uh, the debate because it was the right thing to do, even if it was highly problematic for him against a TV talk show personality uh, who actually said some pretty surprising things that should, uh, you know, work against him in the election. And even in New York State, Kathy Hochul is now in a fight for her life uh, against Lee Zeldin. And I think people should remember, once you're governor of the state of New York, you can pardon Donald J. Trump at a time when Letitia James, the attorney general, is, uh, you know what I mean? So this notion that Donald Trump is going to go to jail in some capacity, I think, is completely fanciful. I think he's going to get away with it all. And that is going to only increase his cachet uh, with uh, and among Republicans. But what's your sense on how this all plays out? Well, look, I think you're right. I mean, I think we, we've seen a lot of uh, coverage lately that the national environment is sliding back in the direction of Republicans. I've seen uh, some press reports talk about not just red waves, but red tsunamis. Uh, let's see. You know, I mean, we've been down this road before. I mean, back in 2020, uh, everybody expected the Democrats to be picking up seats in the House. Uh, and instead, the Republicans uh, gained 13 seats. You know, Democrats were playing in places like Texas and Georgia and places they weren't, they, uh, weren't used to playing in. Um, look, I think the House is definitely going to flip. I mean, Charlie Cook just changed his rating prediction that the Republicans would get a net gain of anywhere from 12 to 25. That's a pretty big range. All right. 12 is not a great night for Republicans. And 25 certainly is. Um, the Senate really could go either way. I mean, there's really 10 races in play. Uh, there are scenarios where the Democrats could end up with a majority of 50, uh, 54 seats. or Republicans could end up with a majority of 56 seats. I mean, there's four races that are, are toss ups. Uh, I'm not convinced that Fetterman's performance was that damaging to him. I mean, I think people could walk away thinking that it was pretty brave and courageous of him uh, to, to do that debate. He didn't have to do it. Uh, people forget that Mark Kirk was a United States senator who was a Republican who a year into his term suffered a stroke uh, and then came back a year later to perform his duties. Um, so I think, you know, there's um, these I wouldn't put a lot of stock in a lot in these polls yet. Trump is not on the ballot like he was in the last election. And that draws a lot of people out. Uh, we've had a lot of new voter registration that are not being reflected in these polls, especially women outnumbering men four to one. So I think election night is going to be very exciting because we really don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. I think the Senate really still could go either way. Jim, welcome back uh, to uh, D.C. You joined us last week from sunny uh, Riga. Uh, Russia continues uh, increasingly loudly uh, to claim that Ukraine is preparing to use uh, a dirty bomb. That's many, many of that's seen as a, a sort of pretext for escalation at the very least or possible Russian tactical or nuclear weapon use. There's been a lot of back channel uh, negotiation and, and discussion. You know, we discussed that Ben Wallace raced to Washington uh, last week to briefly meet with uh, Lloyd Austin and got in trouble because he was supposed to be appearing before Parliament uh, at the time, and and we knew that there was an important Ukraine-related matter that was uh, discussed. Uh, Moscow is now threatening to destroy U.S. commercial uh, low Earth uh, orbit satellites like the Starlink constellation that have been so uh, integral uh, to uh, war fighting. Um, what do you make of the threats? And um, is this effect like what what is exactly he's trying to do? And what is it the Atlantic Alliance should be doing and Washington should be doing to dissuade Putin from doing something that dangerous, that stupid, and frankly, unprecedented, right? I mean, taking war in a kinetic fashion uh, into space. Well, I think, I think what, this is a continuing campaign that Putin has to do what he must have done in order to win. And that is to have the West and particularly the United States to get so afraid that they stop supporting Ukraine. Uh, if that happens, if the uh, support for Ukraine weakens, uh, then, uh, then Putin is, is emboldened and heartened to keep up the fight. Uh, and in fact, he'll be more successful as uh, Ukraine runs out of ammunition and doesn't receive the kind of support it's been getting from the West since that time. And so what he's doing, whether it's talking about a dirty bomb or he's talking about taking out satellites, whatever, he's trying to shake up the West. He's trying to shake up uh, Europe. He's trying to uh, kind of set the battlefield, if you will, for the winter when things are going to get very dark and very cold uh, and there's going to be a lot of suffering in Europe and a lot of pressure on European governments to try to come up with some way to bring peace back to that continent. That's what he's hoping to do. So whether this is anti-satellite, whether this is uh, dirty bombs, this is something that uh, we are going to have to put up with and realize that, number one, you do have to take it seriously. I don't think you just dismiss it out of hand. But at the same time, uh, uh, we're, we've seen this before. Uh, and, uh, and, this is, and ultimately, this is what he's trying to do is shake everybody up. 
What should the West do? We've got to remain solid and that calls for leadership. And frankly, that calls for the US uh, to be making a lot of trips to Europe in the coming months, Biden and others, uh, to really stiffen the spine there. And you know, I just to make the point, it's not that I'm afraid of European governments uh, going to the left, if you will, and trying to strike peace at any price and that kind of thing. But the pressure they will be under is going to be tremendous, both economically as well as in terms of humanitarian effects of that of the winter. And so I, uh, it's going to call for a lot of, of uh, support from the U.S. to Europe in terms of leadership to keep them on the assistance track to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Demo, I want to bring you in uh, really quickly because, you know, over the course of the week, we all go uh, back and forth as we prepare uh, for this program. Um, I want to get your sense on, on not just uh, deterring Russia, but to a deeper issue about Putin's fundamental longevity, which you uh, raised. And why is it you think uh, that Vladimir Putin's term in office will will actually be shorter than longer? Well, a couple of reasons. First, to uh, go back to what Michael just said uh, about McCarthy and Ukraine, uh, you got to remember that even if the Republicans, as is likely, take the House and perhaps take the Senate, there are two factors that are going to slow down any effort, apart from McCarthy changing his mind or doing whatever he does, that are going to slow down the effort to uh, cut back uh, on aid to Ukraine. The first is spend out will continue on uh, whatever is agreed on the fiscal 23 plan. And that means that you've basically got anywhere from nine to 10 months before anything could really happen. And that's a long time in a war that's already a long war. Um, so there's that. Second of all, uh, if the Democrats are in the minority uh, in the Senate, they should thank their stars that they never got the filibuster eliminated because they could filibuster any effort to uh, cut back on aid to Ukraine uh, that's not negotiated within a larger budgetary context. So uh, I'm not too worried uh, about aid to Ukraine for, for some time. Now, in that period, uh, it could well be that Putin is forced into a corner and told either you get out or we'll get you out. And the reason I say that, uh, and I know you, uh, Vago, have said, where's Marshal Zhukov that we need? But don't forget, uh, Khrushchev actually sidelined Zhukov. So he's not really as good an example as you might think. But the fact of the matter is that the military- well, but, he, but he was he was integral in it. But he was integral in that battle, right? Uh, in the no. you know when Beria was driving no. forward and sidelined, him, even if was, Khrushchev did eventually sideline him. Yeah, just as Brezhnev sidelined Khrushchev, right? So right, and he was important also in getting rid of the anti-party movement in '57. So, but at the end of the day, he was sidelined. True. In any event, what we're talking about here is a Russian military that's being humiliated on a daily basis, and the question arises: How long are they going to be willing to put up with it? Because the, what, the only way you can get any kind of negotiation to stop this thing is if Putin is the one that reaches out because uh, Zelensky refuses to reach out first and has every right not to reach out first. And as we just discussed when, the, when Jayapal and her crowd put out this piece of paper, uh, it blew up in their faces, frankly, to the point where Jayapal probably can't have any real serious leadership position anymore. So it's got to be Putin first. And the only way it'll be Putin first is if the military decides this just has to stop. Uh, we cannot be relegated to a third or fourth rate power, uh, basically what Obama called them some years back. And they will tell him, you've got no choice. I think that's going to happen. There are other people who are saying that'll happen. There are experts who know a lot more about Russia who think that'll happen. Uh, and so um, that's something to watch out for. Patrick, uh, I want to uh, and one of the reasons we're moving a little bit more closely is we've got to discuss uh, the national defense strategy, uh, the nuclear posture review, as well as the missile uh, defense uh, review. But uh, Patrick wanted to get your takeaways uh, from the CCP's uh, Congress. Obviously, the the scene of such a prominent former leader as Hu Jintao, uh, to whom she basically owes his job, uh, was escorted from the Great Hall uh, of the People, was, was seen as a signal and as a sign. 
what were some of the other things that you picked up uh, over the course of that week that you thought were uh, noteworthy? Vaga, before I get to China, one thing that seems obvious this past week is that China appears to have leaned on Vladimir Putin over this question of possible tactical nuclear use. The phone call that Wang Yi had with Sergei Lavrov, supposedly to say uh, congratulations on Xi Jinping's third term, um, it was a double message. On the one hand, no one's going to stop Russia and China. On the other hand, China's going to help Russia with all of its problems. Well, what are all of those problems? And meanwhile, uh, you've got a former PLA senior colonel who's very well connected coming out in the Financial Times this week saying China has to tell Putin no nuclear use. I think those were some messages that have been delivered back channel and maybe not just in the back channel. Uh, let me add to that, Vago. Uh, it's pretty clear now that Putin has publicly backed away, at least to some extent, from uh, talking about nuclear weapons. He, he did that, as I say, publicly, and I suspect that uh, it's due to what Patrick just told you. Thanks very much, uh, guys, for that interjection. Now, Patrick, let's get back to you uh, talking about uh, your takeaways from uh, this CCP's um, big event. Well, overall, I think the message is clear. Um, the CCP wanted to project confidence and power. Uh, so not only is she the, the formidable, all-powerful leader now, this new epic, he has the ability and the and the full support of the party to execute his China dream of national rejuvenation. Uh, use whatever means are necessary. And there's just no opposition, including the former leader, Hu Jintao, uh, humiliated as he was forcibly removed uh, from the National Congress building. Um, I think, um, you know, that's that is the overarching message. And I've read through and listened to many hours and read through many words of the whole week. Um, and yet that is the message. There was a challenge and response theme to the entire thing. So if you think about the two hour introductory uh, message delivering the work report of the party by Xi Jinping at the very beginning. That's when he talked about the uh, the mixed metaphors of, of black swans and in dangerous storms ahead. Um, and by the end of it, he gave briefer concluding remarks where he was much more hopeful. He basically said that the Chinese have the will to fight um, and the metal to fight uh, and that we're going to we're going to achieve success. Um, it was very interesting to hear um, the take of Ambassador Nick Burns, who did a very interesting um, uh, podcast uh, interview with the Foreign Affairs uh, on in the middle of the the, the Party Congress, because he he made it unmistakable that China is being more assertive and more aggressive. And yet, the Chinese press, when they got a hold of the final proceedings of this, and after the Hu Jintao uh, issue overshadowed Xi's big triumph to some extent. Uh, it downplayed the pugilistic aspects of what the CCP had done and what she had done uh, and tried to say, look, there was nothing new here. This was all about peaceful coexistence. And they brought out all the old bromides from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It was just interesting to hear that because it's just a reminder that this was all theater. Um, this was all theater about Xi Jinping's control, absolute control. And now they have to go back and figure out how do they get out of this weak economy um, how do they deal with all of their uh, dire debt and property crises and um, demographic crises? Uh, they don't have any easy choices. Let me take you uh, to another uh, story that broke, right? Just as the national defense strategy was being uh, disclosed, the Financial Times did report uh, that the U.S. Air Force was uh, con uh, considering uh, withdrawing uh, its F-15, the two F-15C uh, squadrons that are at Kadena, uh, air base uh, on Okinawa. Uh, the, the jets are old. Um, they're getting harder to support. There are only 100 F-15s uh, remaining in service, and they're in the guard. Uh, the training pipeline has been interrupted uh, for them, and the idea is, I think, that the F-15EX uh, would replace those jets. But in the meantime, there would be a rotational uh, presence. This wasn't a willy-nilly decision, and it had to pass muster by a number of top-notch and meticulous leaders. That include, you know, if 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 true, that would include Frank Kendall, CQ Brown, Lung Aquilino at Indopaycom, you know, Cruiser Wilbsbach at at PACAF, Rolls Royce, and and Abu Nahom, right? I mean, so these are all pretty thoughtful guys. Um, even though you know many of the people in the FT story were very critical of of, of the move, um, what do you make of the decision? And is it the wrong signal at the wrong time? Yeah, let me give some context to this. Uh, Dmitry Sevastopoulos is a great reporter for the Financial Times, and he breaks a lot of uh, news stories on Indo-Pacific. Um, so he does a very good job of that. The problem when you do that and you talk to even a lot of American experts, as he did in that article, 
is that they're giving their first blush reaction to the top headline rather than understanding maybe what's behind it. Um, partly because the Pentagon hasn't really revealed what's behind it. In fact, when I talked to the Pentagon yesterday, they said, don't worry, the Air Force will be putting out a clarifying statement. It, there were a lot of facts that were wrong in that story. A lot of people had misguided ideas. I think the context in which it was happening, though, and this is your point about, is this the wrong time for this message? Let me go back to the 20th Party Congress, because one other clear message that came out of the 20th Party Congress was to reinforce the fact that Taiwan was in the bullseye of uh, national rejuvenation. And that is comported with remarks by senior officials like Secretary Blinken twice, not just once, but twice talking about the accelerated timeline that the Chinese government seems to have now for forcing unification if necessary with Taiwan. So any change to the balance of power, especially where we have an advantage in air power um, and a critical need in air power, um, you know, any, any perceived change to that seems like it would be in the opposite direction of trying to strengthen deterrence. Now, okay, that's true. That's a fair criticism. But as you point out, Rago, F-15s are old. We've got F-22s and F-35s that are modern. They can go, you know, heel-to-toe rotations that can go through. Question is, can we sustain that? Do we have the forces? Fair question. Um, but I think the intent of the Pentagon here is to say, look, we can strengthen deterrence and defense more by not letting the Chinese know exactly where we'll be. Um, and by having forces that can rotate to the Philippines or Australia right. or elsewhere and still be in Japan so that we're not sitting ducks on the runway. Uh, and our strategy, meanwhile, is unchanged. Um, you know, and, and, and the bigger act will be we've got we've to fund these things. And I think, the, you know, the real criticism is not what we do with a couple of squadrons of F-15s uh, per se. It's what else do we provide to strengthen deterrence? The Japanese, for instance, talking about buying uh, TLAMs for Aegis destroyers would be a good move because it would give them an interim counter-strike capability right away before they uh, allow for an extended range surface-to-surface uh, -surface missile they're working on uh, later this decade. So, you know, there are things that can be done to actually strengthen deterrence out of this, but the Pentagon didn't do a good job of explaining it. Hopefully they will going forward. Uh, thanks uh, for that uh, thoughtful uh, re rebuttal, Patrick. I mean, there is um, an enormous amount of capability the U.S. Air Force has. It, it is consistent to have that rotational presence uh, with uh, the actual combat employment model the Air Force has been working. I think what it underscores, though, is, you know, the Navy and the Marine Corps have gotten the, the bulk of the budget increases. And the Air Force is the service that actually needs a much greater and much more sustained investment at this point to build up its capabilities uh, because, because of the pass-through, it eats away at so much of the service's budget uh, that very little remains for the Air Force to be able to deliver air power, um, which is its, its, its primary uh, obligation, right? I mean, the Space Force saw a bump, but that's for the Space Force and space capabilities that are the, under the auspices uh, of uh, the era Department of the Air Force. I want to go to uh, the National Security Strategy Nuclear Posture Review, uh, as well as the Missile Defense Review. But but Michael, give you an opportunity quickly to, for member comments, uh, not just on China and how they saw the CCP uh, event, uh, but also on the National Defense Strategy and Posture Review and, and the Missile Defense Review and whatever you picked up in, in, in the last day or so on that. Uh, well, it's been mostly comments on, uh, on China, right? And I think... Um, you know, it's been even before uh, the the gathering that really installed uh, Xi for another three uh, for his third term. Uh, Mike Rogers came out really first uh, before that. You know, with a statement urging the U.S. allies to boost defenses in the Indo-Pacific region. You know, as as he as Jing um, as Xi seeks a third term, um, and then I think the response was pretty bipartisan. You saw Menendez and Rich, both the chairman and ranking on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, come out uh, expressing a lot of concerns about what this means you know, for repression and human rights, you know, and economic coercion uh, in the region. Um, and then we've seen, uh, you know, I think a lot of Republicans, I think, echo kind of what Patrick said, the concern about uh, the timetable uh, for Taiwan and, uh, you know, the will to overturn the U.S.-led rules-based, you know, world, world order. Um, you know, what we've not seen, and I think, uh, you know, that Congress needs to start paying attention to an administration are the things that they do that really enable China and help China. I mean, things like we talked about earlier, if we're going to threaten to crash our own economy, the Chinese love that. We'd have a fight over the debt ceiling. If we're going to continue to pass continuing resolutions, that hurts our own military. It hurts our own ability to continue research and development in new areas, to go into low-rate initial production on, on new systems. If we continue to close our borders, 
we're, we're not going to have the workforce to onshore the production things that we need to to decouple ourselves from China economically. You know, and if we're not going to invest in education here and keep talking about banning books, you know, and getting rid of gifted and talented programs, the Chinese are going to continue producing six engineers for every one that we produce. You know, and that list goes on and on. I think Congress has to show that they're going to take this seriously next year. Um, and, it, and it's astonishing to me, by the way, I mean, not to just bring politics into it, but actually the Democrats have a series of legislative successes that they could run on, including chips, including investment in engineering uh, and hard sciences and the like. And it's astonishing to me that they tend to, they've, they've been sort of tending to run away from that, characterizing it as, as to run away from the accusation of spending as opposed to being uh, an investment in the strategic long-term future uh, of the country, which I think is utterly baffling. Uh, Jim, let me bring you into the conversation. Lead us off uh, on what you made of the national uh, defense strategy, uh, the nuclear posture review. Obviously, some of this impacts uh, Europe and the current uh, conflict uh, we're in, and the missile defense review as well, as you are somebody who lived for eight years uh, the Europe portfolio during the Obama administration and have the scars uh, to prove it. Well, actually, I will say I worked 35 years in NATO and in Europe, most of that on Europe, NATO. So I got a lot of scars. I got more than just eight, <laughs> eight years. That's right. You were at least a foot taller when you started this, Jim. And it, it I knew, just the job just ground you down. I knew Dove Zakheim when he was uh, in shorts and tennis shoes. So it's been that long. <laughs> Uh, Dove, I'm not sure if you wore shorts and tennis shoes, but uh, anyway, uh, but you know, I, you know, I, I, it's been a bit of a yawn, I, and I haven't gone through and dissected it bit by bit as you have to do uh, to find out, uh, you know, something that's new that we haven't heard, something that's changed, something that is really uh, worthy of the time you put into the documents. Uh, in terms of my my patch, uh, it's it's I, I haven't seen anything that I hadn't heard before. You know, it's China, China, China pacing. You know, got that uh, Russia's today's problem. I think there's been some wording change a little bit. Contest versus something else. So I mean, there's there's some semantics there, but uh, but I don't think there's anything in those documents. And I'm talking really about the national security strategy towards Europe and this stuff. And that. I don't I don't see anything that makes me think that there's a big change one way or another. Uh, I'm willing to give it a second chance, uh, et cetera. I, I'll, you know, was it worth the wait? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. And frankly, I mean, going back to your point about having the scars, you know, these things come out uh, and uh, there's more interest in it in the media, frankly, uh, than anybody else, right. because, uh, you know, in terms of the kind of impact they may have uh, maybe in the budgetary world, you know, maybe as signals to the hill and this kind of thing. But in my world, in the Pentagon, year after year after year, these things would come out and uh, the embassies would come by and uh, get a copy. And, and that was kind of it. So there are certain communities where this might matter. Um, but uh, for me and for people who do Europe and are worried about Russia and trying to get uh, that assistance going, I, you know, this is this really wasn't a, a huge event for me. Uh, and indeed, right. I mean, the administration made clear that both the national security strategy and all of this would have been out far earlier in the year had it not been uh, not not been for uh, uh, Russia. But again, I mean, I, I don't know how big the alterations on the documents really would have been uh, ultimately since the strategic reality is the strategic uh, reality. Uh, well, I agree. Uh, Patrick, I mean, uh, Vago, real, real quick, just on that point, I agree. I mean, they you know, they delayed, delayed, delayed. And you can. You know, you could, uh, uh, you know, say, OK, I understand the delay because I'm sure you're making some major changes because of what's happening in Russia. You know, this is I bet you're going to really come out with something very different today than it would have been, uh, you know, a year ago. But I, I don't think so. I think it took this long because this the administration has a hard time dealing with the fractures inside of it. They were fighting the China hands, fighting the Europe hands. And, uh, you know, right. and I think. I think it took them that long to get their house in order. And at the end of the day, what came out of the bottom of the machine was a peanut. So there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think it's uh, it's interesting, right? I mean, that battle that we've discussed on this program so many times, that to, to the China hawks in the building, this entire Ukraine thing is not just a distraction. It derails uh, from efforts. Uh, to deal and do more and direct more resources. This money should be spent 
uh, in Asia, right? Not uh, in, in, in Ukraine against the Russians, even if I think the White House does have the right strategy that, that you can't let the Russians get away with this uh, if you're going to lay the law down and actually deter uh, uh, China from doing something over, over Taiwan. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me bring you into this and then, and then Dove, uh, go to, to you for your sense. Um, you know, China obviously looms largest uh, in, in uh, all of these uh, documents. Uh, give us your assessment of the totality and what you took away from it, right? Because you're one of the people who mentioned that the nuclear posture review will be significant. It was significant. Uh, I think the B-83, which is a unguided gravity nuclear weapon, uh, there are those who would say, okay, B-61 makes sense because it is a guided tactical nuclear weapon. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, there are those who were fans of the submarine-launched uh, cruise missile nuclear, the Slickamen, uh, and believe that that should have stayed uh, in order to give the United States more tactical optionality. Give us your sense on on the whole uh, strategy and all of its parts and what you thought were interesting and where you think it may have fallen short. Sure. Well, picking up on Jim's comment that a peanut was uh, the result, uh, we do have to worry that our strategy documents are getting as chlorotic, you know, as our acquisition process sometimes. So um, on the other hand, uh, you know, in, in sort of support of the administration, they have brilliantly released three of these documents at the same time yesterday and just shortly after the national security strategy. So in terms of how strategy should be done, that sounds like that's the right process, but we are also two years into this administration and clearly the Russian invasion of Ukraine upended the timeline for everything that we're doing on these documents. Uh, and you can see it in the national defense strategy. And I went through this document pretty carefully in the last 24 hours. Um, it, it reads very well. Um, if you just read this one and don't think about predecessors, because so much of it, as Jim suggested, is derivative of the past. There is an iterative process and they're tweaking it and doing wordsmithing. And you could and you could see how the editors were working uh, Russia into this China dominant national defense strategy. So China is right. still China, China, China. And yet, you know, but Russia here and Russia there uh, in terms of the homeland security, in terms of the threat that it could pose in Europe and so on. Um, I do think that the document, though, is a sound uh, strategic statement. Um, you know, for whatever that's worth, it is good to have this uh, out in the public record. Um, the fact that North Korea, like Iran and violent extreme uh, organization, extremist organizations are lumped together as the other challenge that's kind of a lesser included contingency and they can all be dealt with. Um, you know, that's interesting. Uh, we'll get to that in a second on the, when we talk about the nuclear posture review, because that's where they deal with the differences here. Um, but I, I think the, uh, the national defense strategy is a good statement. It'll be, it'll be taken well in the Indo-Pacific in general, because it does still focus on China and it does provide the balance. Uh, it doesn't get um, too far astray with dealing with just Ukraine. Um, it puts it into a larger context. On, on the nuclear posture review, I mean, the administration did back off Biden's initial inclination to have no first use, uh, you know, uh, or sole use of nuclear weapons for uh, which is country. a dramatic shift, right? Which, right? which it's which a dramatic is, shift, right? And now it's codified in the document, so now we see it in you know in print. So that makes and so the the wordsmith that they use there is that you know it's the fundamental role of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear attacks. Well, I think we can all live with that. That is a fundamental role, but it's not the exclusive role, and that's the key point here. And then you get into the tailored options, and so one of the tailored options when you deal with North Korea is like North Korea, and this is basically reiterating the Trump. 2018 nuclear posture view, you know, your regime doesn't survive, Mr. Kim, if you employ any nuclear weapon, any. So meaning you can't fight tactical nuclear war. Meanwhile, we will have tailored options for China and Russia. And those get into things like the, the, the submarine launched ballistic missile, low yield warhead, uh, and, and get into um, the potential for equipping F-35s uh, with, with advanced gravity bombs, uh, you know, or using other systems. So we're still dealing with China and Russia as major nuclear powers. The interesting thing in the nuclear posture review, the one statement that I don't quite understand is it says by the 2030s, by the 2030s, the United States will, for the first time in its history, face two major nuclear powers as strategic competitors and potential adversaries. To me, that timeline is too late. I mean, I, I think we face it in the 2020s, but that's just my view. Um, they're working this more closely. On the missile uh, defense review, uh, the, the the main message there is a good one. More integrated air and missile defenses with allies and partners. That's what I see going on with Japan and Korea. And, and they're, they're moving forward on, on some specific issues right now. We're also doing it with Australia and Japan and the United States. 
and other allies in the Indo-Pacific. I think that's exactly the right thing. Uh, and we are moving in that direction. So that's that's well said there. That's my assessment of those you know, 80 pages of what they've released in the unclassified versions of these three documents. Uh, and Patrick, thank you very much for doing it in, uh, so well in such a lightning uh, round. Um, uh, Dove, want to go to you to get uh, your sense uh, as well on all of these uh, before we go and talk a little bit about Ash Carter and his legacy. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I'm just going to add to what <clears throat> Jim and Patrick just said. So I don't want to repeat that. I'm totally in agreement. Uh, a couple of additional points. First, the NSS is fundamentally blue sky, just like its predecessors were. Uh, to talk about American leadership it over, overlooks the fact that there are a lot of countries in the world, important countries, and not enemies of ours that don't want to be led by us, whether it's Brazil, whether it's India, to some extent, even France, South Africa is another one, and now, of course, in the Middle East as well. So that's, we, we need to get that one cleared up. And mentioning the Middle East, uh, I should say that there's very little mention of the Middle East in the national security strategy, or frankly, in the national defense strategy. Uh, and for the Middle East, leaders, they're going to take that one seriously. Uh, it's not just ambassadors, because what this is reflecting is a trend that began under Obama and I think has a lot to do with what Saudi Arabia is doing today, for example, uh, essentially supporting Russia with an oil increase. So we've got to come up with some kind of strategy to break the Gulfies away from both China and Russia, and that is not in this national security strategy, and it's important. Uh, Another point that uh, perhaps gets overlooked, but is really scary, uh, in the section in the national security strategy about strengthening the military, it says that we're not going to use force uh, unless the mission, and I'm quoting here, mission is undertaken with the informed consent of the American people. What does that mean? What will Putin see, say when he sees that? What will she say when he sees that? Uh, does that mean we no longer can do anything unless we have some kind of public opinion poll? Does it mean Congress? What does it mean? I find that very, very scary. Uh, on the nuclear posture review, uh, I have little to add to what has already been said, except to point out they got their history wrong. This is not the first time we faced nuclear, two nuclear powers. Uh, the Chinese already had a nuclear bomb in 64. They had a hydrogen bomb in 67. And Nixon didn't go to China till the early 70s. So we already faced that. Uh, we knew there was a Sino-Soviet split, but we didn't know how far that it had gone. So, you know, we ought to get our history straight. And finally, uh, in the only time you really see very much said uh, about uh, the Israelis, uh, who used to figure prominently in a lot of these things, uh, is actually only in the Missile Defense Review. And that, again, underscores the fact that uh, the Middle East just isn't very, very important to the United States until, of course, it starts to blow up, which somehow it seems to do every so often. I wonder if I could just ask Dove a question here, because in, in the nuclear posture view, they make the statement that they don't think that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon. And, you know, I think that is probably something open to debate, but I'm not sure you want to react to that. Uh, yes, uh, happy to. Uh, I think uh, Iran is, is going to get its nuclear weapon. I think the JCPOA, just about everybody thinks is dead. We don't have a strategy for what to do about Iran once it becomes at least like the Israelis and, and sort of has a weapon but don't want, doesn't want to talk about it. But more generally, I think we need a strategy regarding the Middle East, uh, and, and we just don't have one. Uh, what about all these women that, are, uh, that have led protests that are now going on for well over a month? What about them? Uh, what about the fact that, uh, as I mentioned, the Saudis uh, are clearly not supporting where we are in Ukraine? Uh, you know, it just seems to me that even if you prioritize China and Russia, you ought to be thinking a lot more deeply about the Middle East than we appear to be. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, I want to let uh, Jim uh, start our uh, remembrance uh, and uh, discussion on uh, the life and the legacy of Ash Carter. 
Uh, we all knew him and knew him uh, very well. Our deepest condolences to Stephanie and uh, the entire family. Um, Jim, you worked very closely with Ash over a long period of time. I know all of you did in various iterations and, and guises. Why don't you start us off on what his, you think his legacy is going to be? Well, thanks, uh, uh, Vago. I, I, you know, it's still stunning, and I, I still can't believe it when I see this obituary and uh, the, the, the phones just lit up uh, as the news uh, spread around Washington, uh, the think tanks, folks in the government. He touched so many people, particularly young people who were students, who were interns. He always had time for them. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, I have to say his legacy can be found, I think, all over Washington in terms of the, of the people who were working in and out of government who um, had, uh, had, his, uh, had him as a mentor, at least as an example to follow. I remember when I came to Washington as a young man, I heard his name within a year uh, and he's just a few years older than me. Uh, and, um, and he had already started making his mark uh, at, at that early age on dealing with high technology. You know, he could be very intimidating as well. Uh, you know, he's a very smart guy. Uh, he had, uh, he had, he was a bit impatient sometimes. Uh, and uh, you really had to have your A game. When you went in there to brief him, when you saw him in the hallway and he asked you a question, uh, boy, you really had to uh, be up on your game because, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he wasn't necessarily like uh, some other secretaries uh, of defense who would take your head off uh, if you, if you uh, hesitated a moment. He, you know, he, but, but at the same time, he would make note that you weren't ready and that would hurt you uh, next time um, when he asked you a question or if he thought he wanted to bring you into a meeting. I, I, uh, I, and I respected that. He really pushed everyone to, to bring that A game. And in the Pentagon, you know, uh, that, that's important uh, given the issues and the topics we had to deal with. So just to, just to finish up, we're going we're gonna to miss that intellect. We're going to miss that personality and that leadership. Uh, we're dealing with such a complicated situation now, as we talk about every week. And, um, and Ash, could, Ash could help sort that out, and he's not going to be with us to, to do that. And we're going to miss him. But I do get heartened that uh, there are people touched by him, educated by him, uh, led by him, who are still around. Uh, and uh, they're going to have to take forward uh, into the future what they learned from him in the past. Uh, and, and the span, I mean, as you said, even as a young man, it was cooperative uh, threat reduction, obviously a key thing uh, right at the end of the Cold War with the Soviet Union to make sure that there wasn't proliferation uh, all the way to when he was secretary, whether it was, um, you know, carrying through on some of the earlier decisions uh, on opening com combat roles uh, to uh, women, uh, as well as innovation initiatives and, and work that he did when he was uh, undersecretary for uh, acquisition as well. Well, uh, and, and Patrick, Vago, just to add really quickly another uh, legacy and, and such an important one was, was securing all the nuclear materials after the end of the Cold War. Uh, when that was not being done, uh, Nunn Luger was just the gleam in the eye of Nunn, um, Senator Sam Nunn. And so uh, he is the one who implemented that, uh, that whole program of uh, loose nukes, you know, trying to deal with materials and the scientists as well during the, uh, those early days post-Cold War. So that's something the globe can be happy uh, is one of his legacies, because that could have been a disaster if, if that had gotten loose, the materials had gotten loose into the hands of terrorists or others. Uh, it would have been a very dark time. And he was on top of that. and He brought that to fruition. So that's another legacy we have to remember him for. Exactly, because he was at ISP or ISA uh, as, at the time, as, I, as memory uh, serves. Uh, Patrick, I want to get your sense and then uh, Dove yours to close it out. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, Jim said it well in terms of what uh, Ash Carter did for all of us, making us better, smarter people and demanding the best. Um, I think the most crucial point I would want to make is that he was one of the very, very few senior officials who mastered both the worlds of science and technology and strategy and policy. And those are connections that are increasingly vital in the competition with China and in the 21st century. So I think that's really, we just don't have enough Ash Carters. I mean, he was one of a kind, um, so invaluable. I, I would just also highlight as part of his legacy, his own farewell remarks at the Pentagon uh, in January, 2017. And he said, look, I've seen everything change from the Cold War to the post-Cold War to post 9-11, but what hasn't changed, what brought us here is doing one of the most noble things that a person can do in their life. And that's defend this magnificent country 
make a, a better world for our children. We get to do that. We have to do that. Well, he did it and he did it very well. Very well said. Dove? Well, a couple of things. First, um, I didn't realize that Jim was younger than Ash, who was younger than me. So I suspect I remember Jim when he was in shorts and gym shoes. Um, uh, what I, I, I knew Ash quite well. And in fact, uh, when he left the department and went up to Harvard, not only was he teaching the young people, but he was giving speeches, writing articles. He used to send them to me all the time. Uh, I was on his mailing list like he was on mine. And what I take away the most from him, apart from the fact that with with Ash, it wasn't how he spoke. He wasn't exactly a great speaker, but it was what he said. Uh, and I reinforce what Jim and Patrick just said. But for me, the biggest thing was that because he understood the connection between science, technology, strategy and and posture, that he was the one in his various capacities that pushed the link with what we call Silicon Valley, creates the defense innovative unit that we now have in several places around the country and essentially tells the Pentagon the bureaucracy that it, particularly on the acquisition side that was so stultified, you cannot do it alone. You need the commercial sector. It's the only way we're gonna beat the Chinese and anybody else. That was a forward looking vision that continues to resonate to this day. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know that we would be even close to where we are today. He was a truly great man and boy, are we missing him. Indeed, very well said, Dove. And I would agree that um, his ability to bring all of these different strains together, right? I mean, he studied medieval history uh, at Yale, but then went to Oxford and got his theoretical PhD, uh, his uh, PhD in theoretical physics, uh, you know, worked at CERN, worked at Fermilab, uh, and was, uh, when he was undersecretary for acquisition, uh, I thought that one of the most powerful things that he understood is time is the essential element in this. And it is simply taking us too long to do everything. And we need to be able to accelerate uh, rather dramatically because the inability to move quickly is actually one of the largest strategic handicaps uh, we have. And I think that that is, was very, very good advice and very, very insightful. Uh, gentlemen, thanks very much. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. And again, our deepest condolences uh, to the Carter family, to Stephanie, uh, and our sympathies to all who worked with Ash and were shaped uh, and influenced by him. Uh, I know that I was, and I know that many others can say, uh, you know, would, would want to say thank you to him for his contribution uh, to the nation's security uh, across his entire lifetime. Thanks very much again.